Welcome to episode five of the five? Sink or Swim podcast. Five. We're already at five? Cinco. Wow. Could you imagine if someone listened to all five in a row? I don't think anyone has. If they did, that would be pretty cool. Well, I think I have. I could see you doing that. I, shout out Brad. I know Brad does it. That's our number one fan. Brad, we know you're listening. He gave us good feedback. Yeah. Um, on today's episode, I'm really excited. One of my good friends is here. This is the second part in our series of... Get to know the charter class of NSUMD. I said it better this time. On you did the yeah, first one was a was re- travesty. Was really on the first episode of this uh, series, we had soon to be Dr. Chase Labies talk all about radiology, and today we have very special guest, soon to be Dr. Joshua Raber. Dr. Like, Joshua Raber. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for being here. Of course. How could I miss this opportunity to contribute to such a meaningful thing? Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you. You're one of my favorite people in this class. Oh, come on. She's no, not it's exaggerating. True. It's not it, it's true. Can I tell you something? Of course. I you know they say imitation is the is the highest form of flattery. Highest form of flattery, sure. I've got a Josh accent. Can I do it right <laughs> Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Is it fine? Of course. How does it sound? This is it. You're subtle. Just a little bit. How you doing? There you go. Is it good? Yeah. Okay. You sound like you're from New York. I do? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What do you drink in the morning? Um, a coffee. Coffee is right. Yeah. Coffee's right. But the thing is, is I, pu- I put milk in mine. Uh, half I and know. half. Just a splash. Just a splash and half and half? Just a splash half and half. What about a bagel? Bacon, egg, and cheese. I only like the ones that are, like, you know, boiled in the water, the water bagels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that there's I think it fell problem. off there. I think those are the only ways to make bagels. You know, you can do an impression of me now. It's just heavy breathing and the sound of a bag of chips crinkling. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Josh. We're excited yeah, to welcome. have you. Thank you. I'm so, glad to be here. I know uh, last time we were talking about you know how the match just happened. Chase was very happy. We're pretty happy. How are you feeling? I know before we started recording, you were saying it's still kind of just settling in, which is exactly how I feel. But how are you feeling right now, buddy? Well, I mean, I can be honest. I, I'm over the moon happy with the outcome. Um, Michelle and I, uh, Michelle being my wife, who's made it uh, with me down uh, to Florida from New York and has supported me uh, in all facets in Florida. We really wanted to to be here uh, and stick around in the South Florida area. And I'm really, really happy to say that I matched with my number one choice at the University of Miami um, and will be starting anesthesiology residency July 1st of this year. So I'm super, super pumped for that. That's awesome. They're so lucky to have you. I'm very lucky to have been. No, they're well. lucky to have you. Thank you. You hear you. that? And you had a really unique situation, too, just with the logistics of your wife and you trying to figure out, like, it was more about location and mixed with programs. So, like, how did that uh, how that all boil down for you? Yeah, absolutely. You want to just jump into the conversation about match? We can talk about that first. It's completely up to you guys. But yeah, you lead sure. the way, Josh. We okay. follow you to the gates of Valhalla. Wow. Yeah. What an epic comment. But <laughs> I guess, I mean, I guess I, it's 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 maybe better to talk about, back it up for a minute and just go back to the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. Um, and then maybe Please the do. story will culminate in, in, in the match outcomes and how my decisions were made in that respect. So. That's beautiful. I love it. Storytelling. All right. So bring us back. Day one med school. Well, no, let's go no, before no, no. that. We're going yeah, way back. Let's go way, way back. So like, let's bring us back to high school, Josh. Okay. What's going on in high school, Josh's mind? No, 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 no. Let's go before that. Tell us your backstory. Like, where are you from? Yeah. Tell us sure. about your life. Tell us about sure, your parents. Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, um, to product of two immigrant parents who came from former Soviet Union, present-day Ukraine. Um, they arrived in the late 70s under Henry Kissinger's um, rule 
and allowed for all the Jews to leave Soviet Union under religious um, religious asylum. So they came to America and decided to pursue medicine and give back to other people as well, which was one of the main uh, motivators for myself um, and underlying themes in my life to give back to other people and to go into medicine because I saw my parents do it growing up. Um, moved out to Long Island, grew up in Nassau County, went to elementary school, middle school, high school, all in uh, Nassau County, New York, spent my whole life there. High school Josh was always interested in science, always interested in math. I knew I wanted to go into medicine just for the reason that I felt really, really good in, inside seeing um, how friends and family responded to my parents um, at gatherings, at barbecues. I mean, people would come up to me and say, you know, you have amazing parents. And that was really impactful for me um, as, a, as a young kid to, to hear such nice words. What, uh, what type of physicians were your parents? So my mom's an OBGYN, and my father is an internist who also specialized in geriatric medicine. Um, and they're both still in private practice today, which is, you know, really nice. And up in New York? Yeah, up in New York. I love geriatrics. Geriatrics is an amazing field. It's, you know. I think old people are often forgotten about, and geriatric medicine is really, really uh, an amazing field. I feel like they're the patients you can continually learn from and not in a way of like, oh, what an interesting disease, but the wisdom that they have with them from a life lived, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, so I love geriatric patients. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you were kind of getting to high school. Um, it was a great background. And then what happened in high school? Well, I mean, like I was saying, just that, that I always had this underlying tenor that I was interested in science and math and medicine was always kind of like this structure in my life where, you know, my parents were, were both physicians and people always complimented them on, on how they gave back to the community. And that sticks with me to this day. And, and I'm proud to say that they were a big, big drive in, in my decision to pursue um, medical school. But that's, but that's down the line. Um, I went to SUNY Binghamton, which is a small school in Binghamton, New York, upstate New York. It's a university program that's um, funded by the state. So tuition was rather cheap. And I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. So it was good for me to go to an undergraduate program where tuition wasn't too expensive to try to mitigate some of the potential loans that one would have to take by going to an expensive graduate school. That's great advice for anybody listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially those that are looking at different college options. Um, I pursued a, a degree in integrative neuroscience, and uh, the reason I did that was that I, I was always interested in, in how the mind and body kind of connects, um, and integrative neuroscience was that beautiful marriage between biology and, and psychology, so it had some of the components of those two disciplines kind of integrated in one, and that's why they call it integrative neuroscience at Binghamton. And it was a very, very good program. Um, Although I didn't like living in Binghamton that much. It was kind of Where cold is it in relation to, like, because <laughs> I'm not a New Yorker. I just think sure. of New York City. Sure, sure. So it's like southern tier New York. It borders Pennsylvania and border with New York. Okay. Like the big left side of the state. Okay, the, the state that nobody, like, notices, the part that nobody notices. It's a beautiful city in the summertime. Um, but in the winter, fall, and spring, nine months out of the year, it's just, it's, it's frigid and very, very cold. So with that being said, I just took all the summer and winter classes I could. I finished my degree in three years. Wow. Yeah. That's Wanted why you're so young. Yeah, that's, yeah, I'm 
I guess, I guess, yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember starting uh, when we started. I remember thinking, wow, this guy's really young, but really wise beyond his years. He talks Thank like, you. you know, a 42-year-old dad <laughs> with the perspective and the wisdom of a 42-year-old dad. Thank you. I think it's those, you know, the hard years in the in the in the snow that did sure. that to you. In the tundra. Yeah. <laughs> of being It'll mature you. So, what was there like a defining moment? Or obviously, your parents were physicians, and they were very inspirational to you. Um, did you go to medical school straight out of college, or did you take any gap years? So, that's a really interesting point. I want to talk about that defining moment for a second. Yeah. I actually wanted. I actually wanted. Um, to challenge myself um, with respect to is this medicine career? Is this something that I truly want to do? Is this a commitment I can make for a long term? I actually enrolled in Binghamton before I even went through neuroscience degree and everything like that. Um, they actually accepted me as a, a PwC scholar in the School of Business. I applied as a business student because I wanted to create a personal little challenge for myself. Can I actually go through undergraduate business degree and still make it out to be an individual where I'm proud of myself. Um, and I went through that first semester at business school there. Absolutely hated it. It's a, they're rigorous. Per, they're, they're, they're different. It right? wasn't, it wasn't the course. It was not the coursework that was challenging. It was the people that I was surrounded by. That's what I hear from everybody that went to business school. It's that it's sort of a cutthroat yeah. environment. Everyone's a go-getter. And, and it wasn't, yeah. And it's it, the the rigor. The rigor was was tolerable. It was just everybody felt that they could become the next Jordan Belfort, or everybody was <laughs> out to oh. try to figure out a way to make a bunch of money very fast. And if that meant to not do the right thing, then so be it. So. At least at the end of the day, I made a bunch of money. So that that philosophy, and I don't know if that's unique to the kids that I was just with that year, or if that's kind of a common theme underlying a lot of undergraduate business programs in our culture today and like our, what our society values, but I just didn't like it. So I dropped out of business school after my first semester and just went into the college and art school. And that's when I started to take the curriculum to fulfill the um, major requirements for neuroscience degree. So Josh Raver, business school dropout, <laughs> anesthesiologist. Yeah. <laughs> And you said you finished the degree in three years. Did you take time between finishing your bachelor's and starting here? Yeah, the fourth year, um, my quote-unquote senior year in college, I just scribed. I wanted to get more uh, experience with medical terminology, with um, understanding the language that's used on a day-to-day -day basis, just the basic vernacular that is commonly exchanged among different parts of the healthcare team, and also really just understand how to take a good history. Uh, scribing really helped with that. I think this, it's interesting you say that because I think most medical students need something as a bridge between being a regular person and being a medical student to learn the vernacular, like you said. For me, it was like being a new EMT and just interacting with nurses and doctors and like reading patient charts like for the first time and seeing medication names and just hearing reports given. Like that was my introduction. Yeah. And it sounds like that was kind of your introduction. And a lot of people's introduction is through scribing. Yeah, I scribed as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Scribing is really, really great. I mean, it's it's good work. You learn a lot. Um, it's taught on the on the fly. New things can come up patient by patient, and you really learn how to take a good history, how to, syst how to, how to have a systemic approach to 
organizing your thoughts and what the SOAP note looks like before you even enter medical school. Yeah, it's like the C1, do one, teach one, but exactly. you get a ton of experience in seeing it. And then once you get to med school, then you start doing it. I yeah. think I personally think it trumps uh, shadowing. Um, oh, by, of course. When I see it, you know, from an admissions perspective, I like seeing scribing, um, you know, in-person scribing. I really think you get an idea of what it's like to work day to day as a physician. Um, you know, not not fully, but you get to see what they're doing and you can walk through the thought process. Yeah. I'm still a little curious though about when during those, you know, formative years of undergrad and stuff, when did you decide medical school? Like I want to be a doctor. Was it before you went into college? Was there something was it just kind of over time seeing your parents as role models? It or was, what was it, it? you know, it was, it, I always, it's so, uh, what do you call that word? Um, a cliche mm-hmm. to say like that you always wanted to do something because it's not always true. But in my circumstance, which I feel is unique, growing up with two physician parents um, who were my role models, I really, really, really wanted to emulate them because of how I know that they treated people and how people respected them and how, you know, it was just, it was really, really nice to see people coming and thanking always. People that I never even met before would come to soccer games to hang out with my mom or my dad just to kind of hang out with their, you know, good old doctor of the town. And it was nice. Um, So I always wanted to do that. Yeah, I don't think that's cliche. No. I think that's authentic. I think what's cliche is being like, oh, from the time I was three and I had my first doctor <laughs> yeah. play set and yeah. I helped my sister, then I, I knew. I saw the car accident and then I saw that the person was hurt and then I knew. <laughs> and, and, and that and that, cli- that thought that thought of the cliche kind of stuck with me in college. And I was like, this is, this is no way. This has to be a cliche. I couldn't always wanted to have helped, you know, people and, and pursue medicine. So that's why I challenged myself with this business school idea. Said maybe I maybe I'm maybe I'm just gonna challenge myself with with this alternate path. Almost separating yourself yeah, from the inevitable. When I when I when I found myself like a fish out of water, I guess, among these people that I just didn't really identify myself with, and I wanted to be with the people that understood how beautiful organic chemistry can be. For example, for those that like organic chemistry or, like organic or biochem. Chemistry. I mean, these are like things that I really like learning about in college. And then when I found those people that were also trying to get into uh, allied health sciences or medical school, dental school, optometry and so forth, pharmacy, I mean, I was like, this is going to be my career. I'm going to be in healthcare for sure. Yeah. Surround yourself with the nerds, right? Yeah. We're all kind of nerds. Oh, yeah, of course. And people that thrive in business generally are not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are in a different way. That's true. They like um, math, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, I mean, undergrad, undergrad really confirmed it and sealed the deal for me. Um, I excelled uh, at the courses. I found them interesting. I really enjoyed uh, Orgo, like I said before, Biochem. Um, those are like the, the backbones of things that I could go and tutor people on, uh, for example. So I took the MCAT once. Yeah, I took the MCAT one time and just sent it. That you was applied, it. And then yeah, that was it. Do you um, do you remember the day you got in to NSUMD? Like, do you remember that day? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the day. Yeah, absolutely. I remember. I remember the day that um, I was accepted. Um, I lived in Long Island, my fourth year. So this was my fourth year, uh, quote unquote, fourth year when I was scribing. I lived in a small town 
with Michelle called uh, Hophog, which borders Nassau and Suffolk County, and she was finishing up her degree at Stony Brook. Hophog? Yeah. Oh. Hophog. Because a lot of a lot of Native Americans um, settled in in Long Island and New York State, like many many hundreds of years ago. But oh, wow. it's it's okay. an homage to, to to one of the tribes, I believe. Okay. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> Source. Uh, it's, it's, uh, someone look it up. Look it up, Joe. Um, uh, we actually, I had just finished working, and she was home with uh, our beagle, Chelsea. Um, I think she was studying for an exam and I came home and it was, I don't remember what day of the week it was. I said, let's go get some, let's go get some Mexican food. So I was really hungry. She didn't want to cook because she had an exam coming up. She was really hungry. Uh, it, was, it was in the afternoon um, and we just had finished our Mexican food. We got into the car to go home and in my phone, I feel, uh, in my pocket, I feel my phone vibrate and I saw that it was the email. Um, I was sitting right next to her. So it was like fate, you know, we were just in the moment together, we were sitting down in the car, and I knew she had wanted to go to Florida. Um, so this was very good news for us. That's awesome. So why you, you? So you wanted to come to Florida because her family's down here. Yeah, and so it's warm. Exactly. The, the well, the warm weather is one thing. It was just a pure coincidence. Her family's from Brooklyn, um, and they lived there forever. You know, they also came. They also came uh, from former Soviet Union, but they came later. They came in the '80s, and they settled in New York as well. Um, they moved down to Florida just by coincidence six months prior to us starting medical school as a class uh, our year. They just moved down to Florida to, like, relocate. They were tired of medicine in Brooklyn. They were Her father's a, a family doctor uh, and had a practice in Brooklyn. They were tired of how, how physicians were being treated in New York and, I guess, just wanted to start a new life and um, relocate and, and start a new career here in, in South Florida. So Michelle always wanted to move down after she learned that January that her parents were moving down. Oh, wow. So that worked out. Worked out perfect because when I got that acceptance, I showed her and she basically, the first thing she did was she called her dad. She oh. was like, you know, Josh got into Nova. So, I mean, there is a very, there's, a, there's, there's at least a possibility that we can come down to Florida. Mm-hmm. Now it's, now it's on paper. Wow. That must have felt nice. And yeah. it worked out very well. Yeah. In hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made. Right. Oh, me too. So you flash forward a few months and there you are. Joining all of us in uh, good old professional immersion week. We were in the same professional immersion mm-hmm. group. I believe, yeah. Yeah, we were. I believe so. It was me and you and Mason. Yeah. And Kyle. Excellent memory. Wow. Yeah. I remember everybody. Yeah. Me, you, Mason, Kyle, myself. Yeah. This is, there were other people, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah. Um, what was that first couple weeks like that first you know that ease into fundamentals what was that transition like for you you know it's I was just excited like it it didn't feel real for like the first couple of minutes when I say minutes I mean the first couple of days the first weeks you know a couple of weeks when I came down we went to that old school in Davie right Um, it didn't feel real it was like is this a summer camp like am i actually going to be a medical student because everyone was like so you know big-eyed and puppy dog looking and excited and you know of course i was very happy the transition was definitely rough i mean what they say what they say about drinking from a fire hose your first year as as a first year medical student is in my opinion true but it varies with different respects to what kind of learner you are um, so I think I think it really is critical to understand what kind of learner 
the individual is in them in and of themselves the first couple of weeks months and going into that first semester to really become successful how did you take to the the pbl style curriculum was it something that you were uncertain of or open-minded towards and when you got here did you like it i was definitely open-minded to it and i'll tell you that i have always been uh more of an interactive learner i didn't ever really liked going to lectures and watching the lecture hall type of format with 300 people in binghamton because in binghamton that's what they did i mean we had lecture halls 275 350 people wow. um for orgo one or Genchem or you know bio one and two i mean that's you had to just you had to sink or swim yeah oh and really then, you had to <laughs> I, th- I really wanted to just find the earliest opportunity thank I can, you so much really yeah. 20 yeah. minutes in that's pretty solid yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think so you're I'm, the only one to have done that so far <laughs> i really <laughs> i really wanted to find a moment to throw that in there so i appreciate it mitch did you have like 300 people in your class not in like most, but I mean UCF's pretty dang big. Yeah, it's you like guys one are of the biggest big. schools in the nation. It is. Biochem one was huge. Organic one was huge. Yeah, these are these are. When big, you say huge, t- how many people? At least two hundred. I don't know the exact number. At least two hundred. I had like twenty. Wow. So when I I took Gen Chem one and two at a, a local state college as like a transient student, and there was like 20. fifteen okay. or twenty. Okay. Because okay. that was like a normal like a small state school, and then University of Central Florida is absolutely it's huge. huge. Yeah. So. In those classes where, especially like, I hate to use the word like weed out classes, but the classes where like lots of people are taking because yeah. it, it's like a big uh, degree requirement, right. like, you know, algebra one or like gen chem one, they're huge. Yeah. Um, psychology oh, wow. was like close to 300, I think. How do you get help from a professor when there's 300 people well, in your class? I was just thinking when Josh was talking about different learning styles, like, I, I remember this feeling that I'm sure everyone has it where you're listening to a lecture and they say something that goes over your head and they just keep going and you're just like, dang, that's something I got to figure Learn out later. later. Okay. And it's not generally like by going to the professor and getting like an eloquent explanation, you end up just having to figure it out on your own later. Oh, okay. And that happens multiple times per lecture. Right. Of okay. course, because I mean, the professor at these institutions who are teaching these courses, I mean, they have their own higher level courses they're teaching research that they're doing, grants that they're writing and so forth. So, I mean, they don't really have time for, you know, the 20-year-old Joshua to come in and have some silly question yeah. about, like, this gen general chemistry 2 reaction, like, <laughs> figure it out, man. You know, like, you're not going to – I mean, we had office hours, but that was, like, TAs and stuff. You yeah, know? and we could have a whole episode on, like, learning styles and stuff, but I feel like the only way to get uh, – a good use out of lecture is to truly study the material beforehand yourself and then come to lecture almost as review. I think mm. a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. But other, if you're going in there with no background knowledge, man, you're just setting yourself up for a bad time. Trust me, do I know that firsthand? <laughs> um. So, <laughs> so I mean, going back to that uh, question you had about uh, my impressions on the PBL or if I was open-minded to it, I, I, I was, and I was excited because I always wanted to learn among smaller groups of people because I was always in these large groups Mm -hmm. of people and I wanted to be more interactive. I love uh, teaching. I love learning from people. I love understanding things in different lights. And in college, you know, uh, I read a lot of textbooks because that was the only way that I felt that I could understand the course material. I was big into textbooks and I was really, really big into YouTube as well. Those are the two big resources that really helped me through college when I was in those big 300 person lecture halls where like if I had a question about something I would flip to the textbook or I would go on YouTube and just listen to somebody else explain it and it always helped. So PBL was exciting for me. 
um, because I just didn't want the old-fashioned lecture hall stuff. And you spent a lot of your life just listening to your parents as physicians and to, you know, just going through undergrad where you're just constantly taking in material. And then PBL kind of gives you your first opportunity or one of your first opportunities to, like, give your own opinion on things and, like, work through things with people and, and disagree with people and state your case. And it's exciting. Exactly. And I think PBL is really helpful, actually, for training medical students to become physicians because it not only puts you in that environment, it also actually forces the individual to public speak, mm-hmm. create mm-hmm. presentations, organize thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very nice to have something like that every single couple of days, a few times a week mm-hmm. versus just coming to a lecture hall, you know, uh, 8, 10 to 9, 10 or, or something like that. And then you're out the door. You know, you don't really kind of refine those skills, which are important. I don't think anybody's ever put it so eloquently. Yeah. So good job. Thank you. Yeah, we, was, uh, we had a group together. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, some, of course. For the, for the CPR course. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you. I remember you too. Yeah, I remember you. Such a great job. Who was our Who was our facilitator? Doctor Plazic. For CPR. Yeah. And BBB. Yeah, I was in every single one of his groups. Okay. Wait, Are you on. sure? Yeah, yeah, because he wasn't a facilitator for BBB because he was the course director. Okay. Oh, yeah. You're, you're right. He was yeah. the course director. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And okay. we talked about this too on like a previous thing, a previous episode, but. I think something you don't realize when you're going through PBL, because when you're like an M1 or M2, it's PBL or IQ, it's kind of just like a responsibility you have to get done. And like, it's like a checkbox that you have to get through. But then looking back from where we are, you realize how much it kind of did prepare you for clinical rotations. Like you said, case presentations, being able to state your case in front of a group of people, uh, have people disagree with you, argue your point back professionally. Like that stuff really does help in third year and beyond. I can't really imagine going into third year IM rotation fresh, having never done a case before. Ever. Like literally, like imagine spending the first two years lecture hall only, and then now you're on floors. Hitting space bar for two years. You know, whatever. Anki, YouTube, uh, what was it? Boards and Beyond. All the good stuff. All that stuff is great, but I... I imagine like not even going to lecture and just being at home doing all that stuff and then just fresh going to your first rotation to see humans. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think PBL was was definitely a good a good format to kind of develop those skills. And it's not like it was eight hours a day or something. It's two well, hours, it? three two, times a week. It was it was it was mani- it was manageable. Yeah. And honestly, it was kind of fun. Well, it was so much fun because we would just you know joke around yep. before, during, and after. Uh, good us, way to us bond. Students. It's a great your, way to bond. Your group becomes family because here at our school, it's you're in the same group for the entire block. Right. It's not like you're changing people every session. So right. you really become like a team. It's how would, fun. How would you um, kind of summarize everything before step one? Because you know, I feel like you can break medical school up into a few different big milestones. And I feel like although there's a lot of variance in the different blocks, pre-step one is its own uh, chunk of time. So like, how would you summarize that leading to step one? Okay. So just so I understand you correctly, you're talking about everything pre-clinical Yep. All of the organ system blocks, fundamentals, yeah. everything. How did it go for you? And then how did you transition into dedicated? So my formula is not a secret. I've told this exact formula to multiple students at our program a handful of times, but it's unpopular. And the reason it is is just for one thing. I consider myself a big reader. I'm a very, very big textbook reader, and not everybody is. 
people typically don't like to have the thousand page textbook where they have to read a chapter a night and kind of get through that and digest all that information. And that's why Dr. Rajput always calls me Mini Robbins because I read Robbins cover to cover um, and kind of aligned each chapter with the uh, organ system block that we were focusing on that semester or, or that period. Big Boy Robbins. That's, big, this yeah, is one big of the most Robbins. beautiful things I've ever heard come out of anybody's mouth from med school. <laughs> I'm also a textbook reader. Yeah. The fact that you read Robbins cover to cover and that you're young is one of the most inspiring things I've ever. Thank you. Thank you so much, I'm, Samantha. This, see, this is why he's so well-spoken. I'm you not. See the way, you hear the way he's talking? It's because he can read long chunks of text and comprehend it. Well, it takes patience. Absolutely. But do you hear, like, the and words that come out of his mouth? Like, <laughs> the things he says? He said vernacular five minutes he, in. He just, he, he composes his sentences so well. I good read, job, man. I read Robbins selectively, and yeah. it's a beautiful book. And that's just one book. No, it's a good book. And, I mean, it's not a, it's not a secret formula. All I did, I looked at the table of contents. I said, okay, we have CP. Let's give an example, right? We have CPR, which is our cardiology, pulmonology, and renal block. I knew which chapters in that book correspond to the weeks that we would have for cardiology, pulmonology, and renal. I would have a separate textbook for physio, which I really enjoyed reading from Costanzo. And just for, for reference, for those who don't understand, Robbins is a pathology book. It's yes. all about disease only, disease states. Yeah, so Robbins is a, is a pathology book. I had a physiology book. Um, I had a pharmacology book uh, that I also kind of broke down and, and, and uh, read the subsections that were corresponding to the, the coursework that we were, we were looking at. So that was my first pass on all information. I read the books. That's what I just, that's what I did. That's what I like to do. After PBL, I would go home. I would make my PowerPoints or I'd make my presentations utilizing the books. I wouldn't go on online sources or anything. I would just use the books. And then when it came time to prepare for exams, I would utilize my notes from those books, watch those wonderful online resources like uh, Pathoma, Boards and Beyond, look at my first aid just as a reference. It was never that primary source that I was using. It was always just a reference. And my notes were the, were the ultimate primary source because those were the ones that I modeled from the textbooks. And then synthesize all that information together, take the exam, which, which we know were um, MBME test questions. So they were really representative of the USMLE. Did you incorporate practice questions into your first, like your preclinical years? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think pr uh, practice questions are extremely important. UWorld is a gold standard. Um, I also used USMLE RX occasionally. Um, and there were also some really nice practice questions in Robin's textbook, as a matter of fact, which really I helped me. Those. Really, really helped me with the pathology questions um, because some of those really blurry, grainy, uh, slides that you would get on MBME exams, you're like, what is this? Like, I've never seen this before. Is it supposed to be a bone or is it supposed to be a white blood cell? I don't know what it is. But thankfully, I look back at those end of the book questions in Robbins. Um, and similarly, uh, Costanzo had similar questions at the end of its book as well. Those are crucial. And that all prepared you for tests and you did, you know, fine and made it through. Yeah, I, 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 this is not a secret formula, like I said, guys. I'm not selling any infomercial here. This is not like, a, you know, pay four payments of 1999 and you get free shipping and handling. It's, I, just, I just read the book, you know, and when I say the book, I mean a couple of books, but I am just a big textbook reader. That's my learning style. And I, it goes back to whatever uh, an individual's learning style is. If somebody's more uh, an auditory learner, perhaps those podcasts or those um, audios, uh, recorded files from Goljan, those were great too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those really helped on, on some drives. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, you and I had a lot of overlap. I remember we started talking first year, and we had a lot of overlap in how we studied. Both used Costanza Physiology textbook, which yeah. is amazing for amazing. getting a base. And then you were you were very heavy into Robbins. I would reference Robbins, but mostly just use Pathoma and Boards and Beyond. Um, I really like watching videos, even as a first pass sometimes. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Those are great videos. Oh, they're fantastic videos. Dr. Jason Ryan? Yeah. Absolute legend. They're excellent. They're excellent videos. But for me, I, I distinctly remember in the beginning watching them, and I felt like I was just missing information. Mm-hmm. So that's when I decided to make that transition to looking at um, the slides that were distributed from our class. And then I was like, this is not really for me. I like more blocks of text because then I can synthesize as opposed to just looking at slides. Well, that's the one thing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cons to textbooks if you want to be critical of them. But one thing you can't take away is that they're comprehensive. Extremely. Generally. Extremely. They tell a story. Yeah. And and I was always the type of learner that if I didn't understand every single nook and cranny of a problem or every single nook and cranny of how does the heme work, for example, in biochem, like how does that whole hemoidy uh, detach and reattach the oxygen. I needed to know that in and out for me to perform on an exam. Otherwise, I would have gaps in my in my knowledge, and I wouldn't feel confident to perform on the test. I also think, and I think that reading textbooks also uh, sparks that curiosity that we should have as like future doctors, because you're supposed to be the one that you know knows the most, that understands the background, the underlying processes of things. So, I think even being curious about like how does the heme synthesis pathway work. If you fall into the trap of just wanting to know what's high yield, what's high yield, what's high yield, which is really important for the boards, don't get me wrong, but there's a time and place for that. And in the middle of your organ system blocks, in the middle of heme or something, you shouldn't just be going straight to boards and beyond or first aid and trying to memorize the stuff for the test. You really should be working from the ground up and reading textbooks and doing that stuff and worrying about the high yield stuff later on top of that base you build. Absolutely. Absolutely. You would be shorting yourself. You know, you can do great only studying high yield stuffs, but you would be only doing great on paper. Um, mm-hmm. And that does not necessarily translate to you being a really well-seasoned, critical thinker, um, ready for intern year, trying to approach problems with a systematic uh, method, as opposed to just thinking about what's the highest yield fact I know about this uh, disease, for example. And then this is why step one's pass fail now, to address this exact issue. And I think the way that you set up your studying is I'm sure we could make a nice visualization of this, but like there's a spectrum of like low yield comprehensive, if you will, where like you're, you, f- you fully understand the subject, but a lot of the stuff you just read isn't going to be testable, but it helped build your understanding. I lived in that region for my whole first two years. Right. And that's what I'm very getting low to. Yield. On the other end of the spectrum is very high yield first aid, bullet points. This is what you need to know. Everything's high yield. But if you start there, you're screwed because you're not going to have a base. And if you live in the low yield comprehensive section, you're probably going to perform poorly on tests. So if you start there, read your textbooks, work your way through that spectrum as you get closer to tests, which is basically what you did, incorporating practice questions and high yield videos and stuff closer to test time, you're probably going to succeed and have a good understanding. I think, I mean, I think that that's what really distinguishes people um, on these standardized tests. And that's what they used to stratify kids. I know you mentioned, um, Step one being pass-fail, which is controversial in and of itself because now it's more than likely that another metric will be used to stratify medical students and that being probably step two, Mm -hmm. um, name of the school, how much research can one possibly pump out in uh, a 21-month period or 24-month period, for example. Um, 
So there are pros and cons. But I think that when you get to those big, big, big stake exams, really what's going to differentiate students from saying, you know, I'm a 75th percentile score to 85th percentile score or even 90th percentile score is those smaller fundamental facts that may have not been high yield uh, during preclinical years but have taught you to approach problems in a way that you can actually look for the answer without even seeing it before in your life. Obviously, you can't share like specific question info, but I know off the top of my head, two or three questions I remember from step two that I only knew from just having been being curious over the past four or five years. That's excellent. And like very obscure stuff. I'm like, oh, I remember reading about that one time. And I think just, you know, delving into things deeper than you may need to is actually, right. it pays off long term because you'll remember that stuff. No, you do. Are you, you, I mean, the, the, I mean, but you, you, you. You may forget that stuff until you approach that problem. And then, it, and then it's like a light bulb. It goes off. Yep. And that's when you really need it. That's when you need that information. And that's when it's really helpful. So I think you had a really good method your first two years. You went into step one. Josh, you're an inspiration. <laughs> I, say, I hope everybody who's listening to this, if you're listening to it in the future, maybe you're just about to start medical school here or somewhere else, please take Josh's advice. It's free. It is. It's it is. free. It really is. Um, I, I, I can't say it's going to work for everyone, but if there are people out there that are listening who have always felt that they were bookworms, this is a really, really good thing to do. I, I highly recommend just read the book, organize your thoughts, make an outline of the chapter in a little spiral notebook, and use that as your primary source when you're watching those high-yield review videos or you're listening to Goljan or you're watching um, Sketchy, things like that, um, you know. How many hours per day did you put in, you know, your first two years? What would you say? Um, I mean, I think think more so consistency on a daily basis, I would say, was more impressive. Not necessarily hours per day because I would would give myself breaks. You know, Mm -hmm. let's say, for example, Monday through Friday, we had school, after school. Maybe I would read for four hours. Okay. Four or five hours. And generally, we were free by noon. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're done by noon. You read four or five hours, and you need to be consistent with that. Four hours today, four hours tomorrow, because if you skip a day, then it becomes eight hours in one day. And that's really not as palatable as four. That pancake. Yeah, exactly. That pancake analogy. Exactly. So you need to to be honest with yourself and really, really disciplined when it comes to uh, medical school in the first two years with how you approach digesting all this information because it is like drinking from a fire hose it's a lot um and if you find a way that works for you then maximize the strategy there good points good advice on the weekends i would take a day off sunday we would spend time with the family i'd go out with michelle we would do things um saturday maybe 10 hours but i'd break it up five and five you know do five in the morning take a break for an hour five in the afternoon I think that's so important too. And that's something I definitely was not good at first year, got a little bit better at second year and was good at it third year is scheduling breaks and not getting caught up in studying in that like, let's say you don't schedule breaks, you don't schedule days off every day you're studying and you don't exactly have concrete start times and end times. So it feels like you're always studying, even though you're not, your mind is always focused on studying. You're worried about the next time you have to study right when you finish studying, you're, you know, you just it just never ends versus you yeah for example you get home you're like all right i'm gonna read this book from one to five with little breaks throughout obviously yeah, 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 yeah. 
and then maybe tomorrow I'm going to take the day off and then exactly. I'll do it three more days in a row. And like you're very consistent and that leads to total time studied very, not only efficiently, but a lot of volume. Absolutely. You, you get more miles per the gallon and you don't burn out when you study that way. Otherwise, if you're going to cram, it's, you're going to burn yourself out like super fast. Like a Prius. Fast. Yeah, you just want to coast, you know, five miles a day, five yeah, miles a day. <laughs> Prius on cruise control at 50 <laughs> miles an hour. Yeah. That's beautiful. What kind of car is the opposite? The um, crammers. Like a classic, very fast muscle car. Yeah, I would say I would say that. Doing a burnout right before the test. I would say that. Literally and figuratively. I also want to make a comment. I completely forgot to mention how important, for me at least, Anki was. I'm not sure if that was mentioned on your show before or not. We haven't really talked about it. Oh. Well, you talked about it the first show, right? I mentioned how I used it. It's the way. For a lot of people, it's the way. For, not for, for me. A lot I've of never people, used it. For a lot of people, Anki can be used as their primary. But again, my primary were my handwritten notes okay. that I took from the textbook. Anki for me was just something that I would just do before bedtime, do 30 cards, do 50 cards. For a the, tool. For, for just, just that, that, that repetition at night or I'd wake up before going to school, uh, you know, before taking a shower, 20 cards. During lunch, 15 cards. Like it was, it was just kind of like a couple of things that I would do instead of going on Instagram. I deleted Instagram and Facebook and all of those social media apps because the, that, that really uh, is a time sink. So instead of reaching for those things, I would always reach for Anki as like my um, fidget. I guess my fidget yeah. tool would be my Anki. So, wow, how you get so mature and so put together <laughs> in so little years, in so, so many like in so little time. Did, I wish I was you. No. Yeah. No. This is wow. A lot of wisdom being spat here. I know. Well, let's let's skip ahead just a tiny bit. Sure, so sure. you got through step one. Yeah. You did well <clears throat> on step one. So then you go into third year. Yeah. What were you thinking? I mean, obviously, we're talking about being a student, student, student. Your first couple of years is all about learning, 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 and step one. Okay. Maybe less so now that it's pass-fail. Right. Um, were you thinking about your career aspirations uh, through the first couple of years? Um, obviously, you started thinking about them during third year. We're all kind of forced to. Um, but what were you thinking about uh, after medical school? What were your plans? Did you have any specialty interest in mind? Was anything sticking out to you? I think what a lot of students do is their first two years or even their first week, they have the notion that they're going to be the world's one of five pediatric cardiothoracic neuro interventional <laughs> radiologist surgeon. Like they're going to basically accomplish everything and anything. MD, PhD. Everything. DL. I mean, like <laughs> <laughs> all of the above, um, you know, quadruple board certified. <laughs> so I didn't really go into medical school with that. I mean, obviously I was just excited to be a medical student and I wanted to just learn as much as I could. Um, I remember really liking renal physiology and cardiovascular physiology, but I didn't necessarily want to be a nephrologist, for example. But I appreciated the the physiology that underlies that discipline. It's pretty beautiful. Going mm -hmm. in, oh, it's gorgeous. Yep, it's gorgeous. Lots of lots of pictures of mm -hmm. ions moving across the membrane. <laughs> <laughs> um, the membranes be tough. Anyway, third year, <laughs> third year. Um, I don't know. I went in with an open mind. I was really excited actually to do OBGYN. Simply, I remember that simply actually. because my mom is an OBGYN. I remember you considering that. I think OBGYN is such a beautiful, beautiful it's, specialty. It's the best. That I was, I was just really excited to deliver a baby, and I think that that's such a privilege. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's privilege in just being there for a patient on a dark day on the on the wards on internal medicine floor, for example. So every day was was really exciting for me, and it didn't necessarily. Um, I didn't really go into it like. I need to do this or I need to do that. I kept my mind very open, which I thought was important along my journey. Was anything number one in your mind of if you had to pick that day, well, I guess I'll do this? So when I when I got into the OR, when I started seeing how surgery contrasts medicine, I realized that I prefer this pace. I really liked surgery. I thought it was gross not in a disgusting way, but gross, like you can actually see medicine and, and, and change very tangible. in front of tangi- tangibility is what I meant by gross, um, occur in front of your eyes. And the results are immediate. Um, and that's what I liked. So I always like, hmm, maybe I should consider surgery as the, the, the vein. I guess it's either medicine or surgery, you know, and then you have a couple of kids do psychiatry and pediatrics and obstetrics and things like that and neurology. But like the main vein is either surgery. The main two branches are going to be surgery and medicine. It's a big dividing point. Yeah. Branching point. Exactly. So surgery, I really liked, but I was like kind of interested in, in, in a little bit more finer surgery. I always found um, head and neck surgery to be really interesting. I thought that their ability to cure very, very difficult to reach tumors in the, in, in the head, especially, and, um, was, was amazing as opposed to like lap, lap coli, for example, like lap coli's are very cool, but I kind of got a little bit bored watching so many. <laughs> um, I don't know. I like, I liked, I liked, I, I don't know. I, I just well, like, I liked. You appreciated the details. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And obviously, Samantha and I are going into internal medicine, so we don't have as like nuanced a perspective on surgery as you might or somebody else might. But I've noticed that there's those who want to be general surgeons that they like. And, and general surgery, from my understanding, is a lot of it is intra-abdominal surgery. Yeah, absolutely. Versus Definitely. the the niche, the more niche surgeries, I should say, of like plastic surgery, which is, I was talking with Mason, the best way we could describe it was like, uh, external surgery, like instead of intra-abdominal or intra-thoracic, it's a lot of stuff on the exi- on Definitely. the outside, or Definitely. intra-thoracic surgery or neurosurgery. There are different parts of the body that are a branch off of general surgery. Absolutely. And that's a really nice uh, way to think about plastic surgery. It's external surgery. Mm-hmm. I love external surgery. When I was doing surgery and when I was doing my surgery, some of my favorite surgeries were just surgeries that were on the skin, you know, like a lipoma, or if it was a breast surgery case, for example, I really enjoyed being external. I felt that too. Yeah, because that's when you get to suture, you get to actually participate, you're retracting. It's it's very, very cool as opposed to some laparoscopic case. Do you think that there's a part of, because this is for me, it was that um, with intra-abdominal surgeries, unless you're like the operating surgeon or like you're truly first assisting, it's really hard to like see what's going on and feel like you're really making a difference versus if it's very external, like a breast surgery or like lymph node biopsy, like yeah. you can see exactly what's going on. It's right there. You can touch it like so. Absolutely. Um, tell me that after I've stood in a Whipple times two. Exactly. Because that's you can't see anything, but and, and they're, and they're really long. deep. It's deep. It's hard to see. Very, very deep. So finishing third year, exactly with this logic in mind, like you described it, Mitch, perfectly. I said, you know, maybe I should uh, think about maybe getting a rotation in, in in ENT because I was 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 interested in head and neck surgery and particularly um, the the oncology component of it. And when, just for reference, when was this in third year? Um, I took my I took my 
USMLE Step 2 rather early compared to my peers. I took it in June. Okay. And the first few days of June, I took the exam. I took May to study because we had some time off for that little, mm-hmm. um, I guess, was it summer or spring break? I don't even know. We had like a month off before um, jumping back into curriculum. So I took that month to study for step two. I took the exam. And then June, first month of M4, I guess, yeah. is June, I took an ENT rotation uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. And I really liked it. Yeah, how was that? It was nice. It was really, really nice. Um, I worked with an amazing doctor, had a neck surgeon, or had a neck surgeon uh, trained as well, Dr. Michael Medina. Really, really super guy. Is this Cleveland Clinic, Florida? Yeah, Cleveland Clinic, Florida. I actually was his patient one time. Really? I know him. Very nice guy. He's a super guy. Yeah. He's a super guy and an amazing teacher and extremely patient. And he let me do a lot. He let me do a lot. That's very interesting. So, and that wasn't your only ENT rotation, right? You did another? Correct, correct. Um, I worked hard that month, though. Even though I was just like an elective, it wasn't necessarily like I was on a service. There were no residents there. It was just, you know, the, the practice was there. But I still worked. I mean, I still worked like 80 hours a week. <laughs> and wow. it was like, I was like, wow, like this is, you know, I'm working a lot. But I still liked the OR, and I, and I really liked um, just the airway. And I was always kind of like trying to see what they were doing with anesthesia as well because when I would get to, to pre-op the patient early – it was always good practice as a medical student to go uh, roll them back into the OR, help prepare, uh, attach the EKG leads, put on the pole socks, strap yeah. them, do the, uh, the the compression devices. Things like that are important as a student. If you're a student listening, uh, preparing to go in surgery or preparing to go on a surgical rotation, that's great advice. Like even though you're not on an anesthesia rotation in that pre-op period, surgery's not doing anything yet. So really help out the team, do all that stuff Josh said. Exactly. Um, so I would always kind of go in a little bit, a few minutes earlier. Um, and they have a, an anesthesi- a anesthesiology residency there. And I saw how the residents were interacting with the patients. So I was always uh, kind of um, peripheral to, to those interactions. And I was watching how they would pre-induce with certain medications. What were the medications they were giving? What were the doses? What are the contraindications? I mean, these were just questions that I had. And, and, and I was excited to learn about them. And I watched intubations and things like that. And um, the, anesthesia, the anesthesia plan for an ENT patient is actually quite different from um, a general surgery patient. I mean, that's just by default of where we're working. Um, at, from an ENT perspective, anatomically, you're working around the airway a lot. So the considerations that an anesthesiologist will have to take are going to be different from, let's say, uh, appendectomy, for example. Pretty um, much always going to have to be intubated, I assume. Yeah, except for, um, except for uh, some unusual uh, laryngology cases. Sure. That's where they use a, a different. They use a different type of um, ventilation. They call jet stream ventilation, which is very cool as yeah. well. Um, I continued on in July. I did a rotation in ENT at UF in Gainesville. Um, because How was I, that? It was tough. It was tough. I worked a ton. I worked a ton, but I was um, exposed to really amazing pathologies, diverse patients, very sick. But I worked a lot. And again, I wasn't necessarily sold on becoming an ENT. I just kind of was interested in the discipline of the surgery. But I was also finding myself to be very interested in the anesthesia as well that they were that they were administering. So I found myself oftentimes when I wasn't assigned to scrub into a case at UF, I would, I mean, especially during my pediatrics week, um, I remember working with one of the pediatric anesthesiologists on a, on a, on a baby. Um, like a 30-day-old baby, 
wow. who needed a trach um, because of some congenital anomalies that unfortunately that patient had that prevented that um, baby from breathing normally. They needed to have a trach when they were one month old. Um, and I was at the be- head of the bed with the pediatric anesthesiologist, and I was just so enamored with the technical skill um, and the precision that this individual, um, you know, intubation and premedication and the physiology is different in a 30-day-old infant, a, a newborn, I guess, versus a 50-year-old man. I mean, it's a completely different thing. Something you said really stuck out to me, too, is that even, you know, whether you're on surgery or whatever rotation, just by having that, like, curious mindset and by actually caring to learn just for learning's sake, mm-hmm. You can glean so much about so many niches of medicine. And like when you're on surgery, just by like noticing, oh, this is an anesthesiologist here and they're doing all these things I don't understand. Let me ask them some some questions. Obviously, don't interrupt them if they're doing something. <laughs> yeah, of course. If they're busy and they're working in, in something important. But if you have a chance to ask questions, ask questions to just to learn. And like that could be your one time to, to realize, oh, wow, this field is very interesting that I'm not even on right now. Let me figure that out in the future. Yeah. For me, the anesthesiologists were like the saviors of the OR. They welcomed questions. They were kind. I had one anesthesiologist at uh, at uh, Plantation General when I was on my OB rotation. Okay. He just he just adopted me. Uh, he's like he's like Samantha Samantha come here and he had me do the whole thing. I pushed all the meds to make the patient fall asleep. Oh, it's amazing. Every like just I've for me personally I just. I've encountered nothing but the kindest, sweetest people in anesthesiology. And those yeah. are just my limited, even the anesthesiologist that I had for my personal surgery. Okay. I was scared. I was scared to get intubated. But he was so cool. He was so, there's a, there's a way about them. Calming. You have to be. Because you're the one who, you're putting the patient to sleep. Yeah. They're scared. Of course. They're so scared. Of course. Um, I remember waking up from my anesthesiology telling and the anesthesiologist was the first person who woke me up and talked to me. I remember telling him that he should run for president in the United States and that he was really awesome. And I was just, just kept saying some weird stuff to him. But it, it was his kindness and his warmth that really made me feel not a, a little less scared because it's scary. And I think that's important. And I think you have that. Thank you. So I'm excited that's for you. That's so nice uh, to hear from you because, I mean, just your, your, your feelings alone, I felt... <laughs> Um, in my rotation the following month when I did an anesthesia rotation. But before I even go into that, I want to just talk about the last couple of weeks at UF where I had this, where where Mitch, you pointed out being curious is is, is paramount. Um, Because maybe had I not been curious on that rotation, perhaps my career choice would have been different. So being curious may literally change your career path. Finding somebody to ask a question to or just observing um, somebody perform their daily duties may really interest you and it may literally put you into a period of self-reflection where you're like maybe maybe ENT is is very cool but maybe I don't want to be an ENT surgeon you know I don't maybe I don't want to do this um, and there are other things that I find even more interesting and more fulfilling and that's exactly what happened to me because after that interaction with that with that pediatric uh, the pediatric anesthesiologist, I was just interested in in continuing to expose myself to this discipline. Um, fortunately, our school was able to coordinate on short notice a anesthesia rotation in here at Kendall in South Florida, and I mean that was like the best month of my life in med school. You and I were on it together. It was so fun. 
I remember. It was a blast. It was an it was a great month. Like I had a I had an awesome time. Um, I especially like the OB week. I thought that was amazing too. I think I think that month, um, first time rotating with you, my homie. So I was excited. Yeah. But it was that was an exciting time. I think for all of us, uh, then fourth year medical students, new, I guess kind of newly fourth year medical students at that time. Because it was a time where we were all kind of finalizing our career decisions. And I remember you and I having talks, Noreen, um, and the other students that were there with us, right. preparing ERAS applications, making last minute decisions on our personal statements, edits. Oh, yeah. It's an exciting time, especially I think you and I in particular, both kind of being not undecided, but having two specialties that we really liked and having to commit to one. Um, just a very cool time. Another branch point. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, these are these are crucial interactions you have with peers. These are crucial interactions you have with colleagues and, and um, you know, other other physicians that are going to shape your path, shape your career path. I mean, we had conversations about this for that whole month every day. Should I do A or should I do B? And it's important. And it even it doesn't even matter if the conversations are repetitive. Sometimes you have to have these conversations with your closest friends, your classmates, your family, because if you don't, you may end up just picking the one that's the most convenient or that makes the most sense from that limited perspective before all those conversations. And it may not be the best choice for you, even though you'll probably succeed in either. Um, I so remember yeah. how much you hemmed and hawed over EM versus IM. Yeah. My gosh. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. I needed My to. My gosh, Mitchell. I needed to, though. You needed, yeah, you absolutely did. You absolutely did. And Josh probably didn't him and haw, as you said, as no, much. he knew. He knew. It was, it was you know, the, 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 when I finished UF, I was tired physically, but also tired because it didn't, like, seal the deal for me. And it was like, I'm kind of already a couple months into M4 year, and it's like, I like it, but is this me? Is this something that I'm going to make sacrifices for family, life, for five plus years? Um, I wasn't sure. Was UF considered a, a good, like uh, you would have been happy to have matched ENT there had you gone that route, like a, a solid program? I mean, if you speak to any applicant who applies ENT, they're happy to match really anywhere. Right. And if you're matching at an academic center like UF, which is arguably one of the biggest programs in like Southeast Florida, uh, Southeast America, rather. I mean, you, you, you're going to see the best of the best types of cases there. I think that this is an important point for anyone who's undecided, kind of like Josh and I were. Go do a, an away rotation at a place you would consider a, quote, dream program. Definitely. Or a, a top program. For Josh, it was ENT at UF, a great place for ENT. For me, it was EM at Orlando Health, a great place for EM. And if after the end of that month, you're not convinced, it's probably not for you. That's a great point, Mitch. If you're not convinced after seeing what it could be in the best case scenario and it's not really sealing the deal for you, I would suggest you make some self-reflection, you know, look inside and, and, and reassess. Absolutely. Um, the month of anesthesia confirmed it for me. It was amazing. I loved it. Every day I was excited to come. I was like, what are we going to see? Am I going to intubate? What medications are we going to do? Um, it was, it was, it was arguably, in my opinion, at least for myself, the best clinical month for me during medical school. 
And it sealed the deal, as you said. Sealed the deal. Sealed the deal because that's my that determined my career. I applied. For, I applied anesthesia because of that. So let's talk about that. So, I guess before we talk about how your personal application season went, if you could just briefly describe how applying to anesthesia works, because similar to radiology, we talked about with Chase. There, to my understanding, there's prelim, TY, advanced, categorical, all these different terms. Uh, so how does one apply to anesthesia? Anesthesia has changed uh, over several years, last several years, where it used to mostly be advanced, where you had to secure a PGY1 position and then match your, you know, match into your advanced um, anesthesia residency. However, more recently, most programs are categorical, meaning that they are integrating a clinical base year your PGY one year is incorporated into that program. So now you are accepted into or matched with a four-year program. There are a handful of programs that still are advanced, um, but that number is fewer than categorical. And how long is uh, anesthesiology training for those who don't know? So it is four years. One year is your clinical base year, and then you have CA one, two, and three, so a total of four years. CA clinical, C, cl yeah, it's like a, like your clinical anesthesia year. Right, excellent. So, how did it go for Josh? How was that process? How many places? If you don't mind sharing, you don't have to. How many places did you end up applying to? How many places did you interview at? What was that whole experience like? I have a bit of a unique circumstance because my wife Michelle. Um, was applying to podiatry schools during this time. She wants to be a, a foot and ankle surgeon. She's applying for these programs. So we wanted to stay together geographically. Before interview, before the application cycle kind of opened, she started interviewing and finding out who was accepting her and so forth. So it really helped refine the geographies where I was even thinking about applying for programs to train at. Because for me, it was important to stick together with Michelle. Um, with that being said, she had gotten accepted into a couple of programs, um, and one of them were in Los Angeles, one of them were in Cleveland, one of them were in Chicago, and one here in South Florida, Barry University. So I took those four cities. I have friends and family back in New York. I took New York programs, and I just applied to a couple of cool programs um, in the Northeast Tri-State area like Philly and so forth. And those were the geographies that I picked. Otherwise, I didn't really apply to those programs because they were not really, um, they didn't align with my personal um, goals and values at the time. So you started geographically, picked programs in those geographic regions, and then maybe a few others, and that's it. Correct. I think what people uh, fail to remember is that you need to be happy with where you go to train. And if you're gonna be miserable, like if you're used to living in a certain, let's say you're always lived in a city, for example, and you can't even think about living in a rural area. You've never lived in a town with 5,000 people or 10,000 people, and that's gonna drive you insane. Why would you consider those programs, you know, whereas people who come from smaller towns prefer that? And that may align with their personal goals and values better, and they'll be happier in those places. So I think looking at where you're going to be happiest the most, and for me it was keeping my family together, um, allowing my wife to continue her educational pursuits to become a podiatrist while also allowing me to become an anesthesiologist was important. So for that reason, I chose those geographies. 
How many total places did you apply to but, um, amongst those geographies? I um, I believe it was somewhere in the, uh, I would say, high 40s. Oh, wow. High okay. 40s. So Is not, that typical for the average applicant or? So I think, I think that's a, a difficult question because now with COVID, everything has become virtual and people are applying to Over applying. Every, yeah, everywhere yeah. and anything because they don't necessarily fear having to travel there to interview and that's not a deterrent anymore like it used to be. Mm-hmm. So people are applying to 100 programs. Yeah, it's a I very did. yeah. It's a very strange, I guess you can call it a problem that the only thing limiting your applications is how much money you have in your bank account. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, people, people, yeah. That's that's a real that's a real consideration for a lot of people. I mean, if you got five thousand dollars to blow, you can apply to two hundred plus programs and. Assume. Well, not just that, but there's also a level of desperation as well, right? Imagine 100%. you didn't match, or imagine you're coming from one of the Caribbean schools. But imagine, You're going to apply to Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm kind of talking from the perspective of like a U.S. student. But if you are okay spending that much, you're kind of essentially guaranteeing you're going to match because you'll probably get 30, 40 interviews if you apply to that many places. I don't even think it's necessary. It's not. In my opinion. It's not. Um, and it may even take away from other applicants, which is not, it does. Which is not, it does. A, which is not a really yeah. ideal yeah. Uh, situation. So, I, I mean, I didn't overdo it. I applied to high 40s, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know what the average is. I think maybe the average was... Uh, in the 50s, maybe 60, but okay. that's but that's a little bit inflated with the last cycle being COVID and everything. So I I don't I don't know. And if um, you're if you're an applicant, just know that the number you should apply to, you'll have to just talk to multiple advisors and people, and based on your scores, your application absolutely it will vary. And the AAMC provides information about this. Uh, their their um, point of diminishing return study that they have on their website. You could put in your specialty and it'll tell you. That's a great chart. Yeah, it is a it's a phenomenal chart. Really, really good chart. Um, And if you're someone like Josh, it'll help you. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Samantha. I mean, it'll (laughs) help everybody. Point of diminishing returns is an excellent chart because if you, if if, let's let's say you are um, competitive enough to apply to thirty programs, why why apply to sixty? Right. Why? Right. You know, is it going to make a difference in your choice? Because maybe those first 30 programs are actually the programs you want to go to. And the 30 extra you're going to apply to are just taking away from other people or it's just a waste of people's time or you're wasting your own money. I don't know. And if you're gonna, you only go to one place, so why If you're going to give yourself a pad in your applications, just don't go overboard, I guess is what we're trying to say too. Yeah. Though I needed to apply to 91 programs just – I'm not a great applicant, so <laughs> I think like, you I'm did. not Josh. You know, I, I almost I almost cried when I saw you open up your envelope on stage. No, I, I know t- you told me, but I uh, I yelled I, and fist pumped. I was so so happy for you, uh, especially when we spoke in the Harvey Lab. Mm-hmm. We had that conversation for a few minutes in the intermission. Yep. I really wanted it to happen for you, and I'm glad it did. I'm still in a state of disbelief. I think we all are. Yeah. Josh and I were talking about that right before you got here. Just it's like still sinking in. Yeah. Before I applied, you know, I was told by many people, like, hey, you know, you might have a chance getting interviews at some academic places, but you're probably going to end up at a community program. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to be a doctor either way. It doesn't matter. Um, so I am in a state of shock and very excited. So. Wow. No, well, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations to you. Thank you. More importantly. Thank you. Doctor. 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 <laughs> so you did, you know, you applied to 47 places. How was, and you know, obviously you got interviews and matched successfully, but like how was the whole process for you interviewing? Um, good, exciting. Obviously I had never done this before, being a first-time applicant to residency. I didn't really know 
what to expect. So I purchased a book and I'm like a little embarrassed to say this. I purchased <laughs> one of those little books. Hold on, I love this. Yeah, yeah. Like one of those like um, advisory, like academics. You like, for dummies. Like how do you how do you approach the interview? What I are the questions this. to expect? Oh, that's this. fine. That's yeah, not, that's yeah. actually really I, no, good. No, I didn't. I didn't purchase a book to like how to fill out an ERAS. Like, no. that's not yeah, what yeah. I'm referring no, to. No, but like, how to do in, how to interview? How to yeah. interview? Because I hadn't interviewed in so long. I remember we interviewed for Nova, and it was four years ago. I think I that's mean, totally fine. I will tell you 100. percent it's in your personality to get that book, but I will tell you that you did not need that book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate At it. At all. It was a short book. It was probably <laughs> 90 or 80 pages max. Okay. I spent all right. $10 on it. It was one of those like academic advisory uh, published books like, here are the questions that they might ask you. How do you approach an ethical situation? And um, you know, I just, I didn't want to be underprepared. And I think you probably would have succeeded i don't think that book was the reason for your success but <laughs> i think little things like that maybe just calm the nerves of like okay i have done something to prepare agree even if it's placebo even if it has absolutely exactly. no effect on the outcome it, it'll it, it'll be good for your psyche it'll be good for your mental state going through this extremely stressful process and then you won't question yourself after the fact like did i say something weird did i do something weird i should have got that book this is this is this is an interesting point you bring up because interview prep People are going to have questions about it. I, when I applied to med school, I had a very staunch policy of I will not prep for anything. I will read about the school. I will read about the program, but I am not going to practice anything. I took that same approach with the residency interview, but I don't agree, I don't think that people should because I had a lot of, um, you know, anxiety building up to match week. Like, I probably said something weird. I probably made a face. I probably didn't answer that one ethical question right. It's okay. You were human. Right. You were being a human, right? You're, I mean, I had to I go think, in there and do it raw. I think doing it raw but somewhat polished is probably the balance. I agree. You don't want to come off in an interview like a robot as if you've taped uh, you know, a, a poster on your board behind the camera, for example, and like are reading line for line <laughs> answers. She asked question 173. I practice this. You know what I mean? Like that's extremely um, it's I see evident. people do that and, you know, I, I do – interviews for our program here and I, I you know they'll come into the MMI zoom room and they'll be like oh hold on I need a minute to prepare but you see their eyes darting back and forth as if they're opening up a word document and then they just start going yeah so don't you don't, do you that don't, you don't want to do that that's don't do that. that's not you, you know um, it's, yep. it's 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 evitable you know you, you can see you can see somebody that's reading off a script for example what I did was somewhere in between you guys I didn't uh, I did. I think I read some sort of like PDF of a interview tips thing, uh, or at least and briefly. But I looked at a list of uh, just questions of potential common questions, just so I got an idea of what I would be asked potentially. Yeah. I didn't practice answers for them, but it was nice to just read questions and be like, okay, these are reasonable questions. I could probably think of something on the fly. Right. Um, so yeah, I think there's. You don't want to go too hard, and I don't think any of us any of us went too hard or did too little, but. Um, I just jumped right in. Um, I remember my first couple of interviews, extremely nervous. The camera would come on. I would feel like this impending sense of doom, almost like, damn, like I'm on the spotlight now. Um, it's just me and the interviewer. Um, and this is my career on the line. This could be make or break, for example. So I think it's okay to be nervous in the beginning. But I, I, I'm going to say that as the interviews continue to go on, you start to kind of find your, your pace your and groove. Your, your groove and you start to understand 
the process of these things. This is new for the interviewers as well. I mean, virtual interviewer, uh, virtual interviewing is is a brand new concept, so it has its hiccups. No one's entirely comfortable. On exactly, Zoom. no one is entirely comfortable zooming, and I think that you know that's probably may might be become the norm, but with each subsequent session, you become a little bit more comfortable with your answers, and and you get better. Yep. And can 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 confirm. It. Uh, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but residency interviews feel very different than medical school interviews, which is For sure. probably all of yes. our last interviews uh, experience in that you're not, it's not like they, um, you, know, you have some power in, in a sense and that they are trying to sell their program to you so that you rank it highly. They want you to like their program at the end of the interview day and they're not typically gonna grill you in the interview session. A lot of them, probably 90% of them were conversational for me. As somebody who went through this entire residency interview season, both going through an entire medical school interview season at, at the opposite end, interviewing candidates for our program, and then interviewing, you know, to get into residencies, they're completely different. They are completely different. Medical schools, they hold all the cards. They, it's, it's hard to get into medical school. Only 30, 40% of people that apply get in versus residency, your match rates are and much higher. If you do, of those 30, 40%, most of them only get one acceptance, 85 correct? 85% get one acceptance. Wow, so I didn't the know powers that. within the medical schools hands. Wow. Um, versus residency, it's sort of, it's a two-way. You know, they want you just as much as you want them. Um, but, yeah, they're very different. Very, very different. Um, which was hard on the psyche for me to sit in admissions committee meetings, hearing that how we evaluate candidates and then knowing that that's happening to me at these other programs. And so that always is in the back of my head at an interview, like, oh, they're going to say something about my background. They're going to say something about my suit. They're going to say something. So kind of haunts you. No, I, I agree. But like I said before, I mean, you're, you're going to be stressed. It's just those little things that you can do to kind of calm your psyche and calm your, calm yourself. Like you said, Mitch, what if I didn't buy that book? Would I have changed the outcome? I don't know. If I didn't get a new tie, for example, maybe they would have looked at me funny. Like, why is this kid not wearing, why is this kid wearing the same tie for everything? Why is his tie the same as his, his tie ERAS in photos. his ERAS photo? <laughs> yeah. Right. But these are like small things that may not necessarily be a substantial thing, but are calming to you as the applicant and, you know, are important. One thing that I did that I would recommend to everyone is I spent, um, the mic I'm using right now, I spent 130 bucks on a nice USB microphone. I spent 50 or 60 bucks on a nice webcam, less than $200. I made myself look presentable. Strongly agree. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is a must do. It is, and this it, is a must do. If interviews are virtual, I. I mean, there is no reason a med student can't find 200 bucks for a virtual interview season when you would have been spending thousands traveling normally. Strongly agree with you. It's Even almost a pre-med. I'm telling you this from this point of view. In every, you don't get to this point and then just kind of poop out on your your AV equipment. It, and even to the point where if you show up using a laptop webcam at a weird angle with terrible lighting and you sound bad and your voice is cutting out, that's like points against you. Cause it it's is. like, why do you present yourself like that when you have control over those mm -hmm. variables? You do have control. And it all goes back to, does it make a difference? Probably a little bit, but if you had not gotten a better webcam, if you had not gotten the better mic, you're gonna sleep at night way worse. And that's what I was yep. trying to get then, at. Then if, you, then if you're like, I have a better camera, my image is very good. Right. My quality is very good. My voice is not very scratchy. This is what I needed to do to basically maximize my chances at this opportunity. Lighting also. 
Um, don't skimp on that. These are small yeah. things. Very, either, very, very important. Small things. Either have nice natural lighting or get yourself a little lighting thing. My yeah. window is enough for decent lighting. Um, but yeah, and like if if at all, it'll serve as a, some solace to yourself of, yeah, I did something to make myself look presentable and that's enough. And for anybody who doesn't know, sitting in front of a window is the best thing you can do, meaning your face is facing the window. That's, that's it, good natural yeah. light. Not your back is facing the or window. Or the side, that's not that good. can look weird too. Yeah, just straight on, you are you are staring out your window, use, use your camera's in front of you. Use the to control the intensity of it. Yes, that'll, that'll give you the best lighting situation. Or key lights. I think key lights are phenomenal. And some people use ring lights, like the YouTube lights. You can use those too. Right. So... I know we're like kind of reaching the end here. Sadly, we have a little bit of so time left. Uh, one thing I do want to go into, though. I talk too much. I'm very sorry. Oh my no, gosh, you don't. No. No, it's been excellent. We love it. Please, please ask me what questions you have left. No, no, no. Nothing crazy. Um, one thing I, I'd love for you to kind of share, um, which I think would be a good way to kind of close this out here, is if you could just talk about the different career paths. Obviously, you're going into anesthesiology like we've talked about. You'll go through your intern year and then your three CA years, so a total of four years of anesthesiology training. What are the different uh, career paths after that, whether that be going straight into practice, going to fellowship, um, and then what are you thinking about? So people can do a couple of things after they finish residency as an anesthesiologist. They can join academic practice where they work in an academic institution university setting or university affiliated setting and act um, as, as, a, as a faculty um, and just do general OR stuff for the most part and, and, and participate in, in teaching and so forth. Or they do research. People can also go into private practice and join a group and do general OR stuff, um, non-OR related things like um, uh, MRI sedation, um, endoscopy, sedation, things like like the GI suite, for example, those are considered non-OR anesthesia um, situations. People can also go and pursue fellowship if they don't want to just be general anesthesia. They can do pediatric fellowship. They can do obstetrical fellowship. They can do cardiovascular fellowship, uh, chronic pain, regional, uh, acute pain, I mean, there is critical care medicine. There's a lot of different fellowships and career paths that an anesthesiologist can take if he or she decides that um, they want to pursue a fellowship. Um, and, the, and each path has its own uh, components and subsections within it as well. The main ones I was familiar with was uh, cardiothoracic, anesthesia, pain, critical care, and peds. And to my understanding, what's unique about anesthesiology is most, if not all, of the fellowships, you might have to correct me, are one-year fellowships, yeah. as opposed to many other fields are typically two or more. Yeah, generally one year, um, unless you go to a very specific program that has some research integrated where you're going to be spending a lot of time with, with writing grants and so forth, that may be a two-year situation, but most are one. Yeah, and it's something to consider um, just if you're, you know, if you're kind of thinking about the timeline of your career if you're considering anesthesiology i considered it for a, a few months in third year and let's say you wanted to be a you know cardiothoracic anesthesiologist or you wanted to be an intensivist working in the icu through the anesthesiology path both of those are five years total for anesthesiology plus just one year fellowships is a pretty interesting path what's interesting that i didn't even mention uh, and i just remembered it now dr rajput told me Awesome guy, by the way. Oh, he's fantastic. 
Really, Trying to get him on the show. Re- you have to. Would love to. You have to. I would really. He says we have to come up with a very detailed plan of what we want him to talk about. I just want him to come on. He told, I mean, he told me when I was speaking to him kind of as an advisor, and he asked me what I liked about anesthesia. He told me that um, the world's ICUs outside of the United States of America are run by anesthesiologists. Which, which I didn't no, I know no, that before no he told me, um, you know, about like half a year ago or eight, nine months ago or something like that, um, whatever, whatever, whatever month it was that we were talking. But I was like fascinated with that. Anesthesiologists are running the ICUs. And then I realized that anesthesia is just this really good blend of that procedure and medicine, hands-on, but also the discipline and philosophy of, of, of medicine. And, and that's how it really sets you up to be successful in the critical care setting. You know what? That makes sense. As I didn't know that till you just said it, but now it makes sense. Yeah. Because in the ICU, a lot of your patients are sedated. Yeah, ventilated. Perioperative. So they're yours. Like you're, they should be under... Sedated, and ventilated procedures, things wow. like that. Just another perspective that's similar is, um, I know particularly in Europe, anesthesiology is heavily involved in pre-hospital medicine, which is something I had a really big interest in for a oh, long okay. time. They work really closely with uh, paramedics, mm. and um, they're often on, uh, you know, there's various things they call them, but like go teams where they'll send out a doctor into the field to mm-hmm. maybe intubate somebody. In France, they even have pre-hospital ECMO. They send out a mobile ECMO unit, wow. which is insane. It's like the only place in the world that does that. And that's cool. anesthesiologists. Very cool. Fascinating. The, remember the, the guys that got, tra- or the kids that got trapped in the cave? Uh, yeah. And uh, they the, sent out yeah. a couple anesthesiologists and they went with uh, like some SWAT or SEAL team and wow. brought an anesthesiologist in there. They had like IM ketamine they were dosing these kids with through the cave. It's amazing. That's ridiculous. That's anesthesiology I mean, that's, that's so, I mean, anesthesia is, it's, it's a growing field. There's always going to be further advances on this, on the forefront of anesthesia. I mean, we're just going to become better and better at monitoring our levels of sedation, perioperative um, medicine will become better in terms of its quality. Uh, ERAS has a very different meaning in the world of anesthesia than it does for medical students. It uh, enhanced recovery after surgery. So there's a lot of research that goes into ERAS, not the ERAS that you apply to residency with. Um, So I'm very, very excited that I chose anesthesia and I'm looking forward to moving forward. I feel like it's the true embodiment of medicine, to be honest. I think it's very... It's very beautiful. It is beautiful, and it's so. I didn't know how much of a well-rounded uh, approach anesthesia has, um, incorporating both medicine and hands-on facets day to day. I'm I'm super excited. And keep in mind the ABCs of anesthesiology. What are the ABCs? The first. What is the A? Airway, breathing, <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> All very important. There things. you go. The ABCs. Cell phone. Definitely. Emergency medicine. You know those, right? No. Airway, breathing. CT scan. CT scan. Ah, definitely. perfect. Yeah, okay. Funny. Do not forget your cell phone when you go to the OR. You know the ABCs of internal medicine, right? No. Since <laughs> you brought this up, there's a lot <laughs> no, of No, please. Airway breathing charting. Ah, perfect. That's beautiful. Perfect. Um, also, one thing I would recommend to anyone interested in anesthesia or honestly anything, kind of being here in fourth year, I'm trying to learn more about like the history of medicine because it's really fascinating. The history of anesthesiology Super. is amazing. Super. Super, super good. Yes. Super good history. Uh, a lot of wonderful artwork is painted on the first couple of times any anesthesia was used. And these are 
monumental paintings. What was the? It was ether. Is that the yeah? Ether? ether in the dome. Ether in the dome. Yeah. Which what that's it, the dome is still at Yale, is it or is it? It's one of those Ivy League schools. It's like the it is a. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a dome. It's a lecture hall with yeah. a dome. The the the, 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 dome. S- the ceiling or the roof is domed shape. Right, and uh, and the bottom of the lecture hall is where they anesthetize the first patient formally in front of a group of attendees, and yeah. it's still there. Wow. So that, yeah. Uh, there's a book called, I'm reading, I'm like halfway through it called Doctors, the Biography of Medicine. And one of the chapters is on anesthesiology, um, as well as all the different prominent doctors like William Harvey and Hippocrates. It's really interesting. Are you trying to come up with like talking points for when you're rounding on your IM rounds? Because they got to be long. That's like so is that the kind high of level is that stuff. The, is that the attending you're going to be? Did you guys know that the history of, is that going to be you? His, no, my memory's not that good. His, okay, <laughs> I, I would do that. His <laughs> medical knowledge that. from a historical Dr. standpoint, High. unbelievable. Guy's unreal. Unbelievable. We had an hour discussion about latex gloves. How about when we were on surgery? And I think it was me and you. It might have been me and Neha. I don't remember. It was me and another student. He pulled us aside just by a nurse's station, gave us an hour-long lecture by the, the nurse's station. That was Neha. It I was remember Neha. him... I remember we were at uh, one of the what are they called noon conferences for surgery yeah. or M and M's and he 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 busted out the number of Daltons of one of the chemicals <laughs> and when you and I looked at each other like right away. Like, yeah, he asked me yeah. that question too. He did. What's the molecular weight of low molecular weight heparin or something like he that? Did that? I was like shocked. He, he <laughs> talked about bile for an hour, like everything gallbladder. There's nice. so much, he, and maybe he he's just like smart. recites these, but uh, he's an intelligent guy. But yeah, I mean, do you want to be that kind of attending one day where you just have all these facts at the ready? You know what? I might be. I usually have facts at the ready. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry I think to as anybody long as, in advance. As long as you're not arrogant and you're just doing it because it's no, interesting, it's I, fine. I, I don't think. I mean, I'm already old, so I, I am who I am at this point. If I could do that about the heart, I'll be happy. I think you're going to be good. And I think Josh is going to be great. Thank you. Can any future students, if they're listening to this and they know you're here, can they reach out to you? If yeah. they find you somehow, yeah, of course, of if course, you can find his contact. <laughs> if you can find him, I mean, just email, you know? just email. Um, I guess my professional email. It'll you'll you'll have to Google my name and find it. I'm and sure the yeah, they school don't, will yeah. publish it. And they can be like, "Hey, Josh, I listened to your podcast from five years ago." <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, Doctor Rabar, I listened to your. I'm also a, a student at NSUMD. Can I can I t- can I can I talk to you? Always. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Hey. You're going to be so fantastic. I, I cannot wait to see what the future has in store for you and Michelle. This is a very exciting time. Congratulations to her. Thank you. Congratulations to you. Thank you again. You are going to be that, that uh, you know, the, the, the shining light of hope in, in the OR, which is, to me, a horrible place. Um, but you are going to be the person in there that, 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 that brings it calm and, 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 and peace. That's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm excited about. Those few moments where you see the patient is scared. Shaking, You have a few moments to gain that individual's trust and to change their entire perspective on that day, which may be one of the worst days of his or her life. Um, And I think that's an incredible honor as an anesthesiologist. And I think the two people out of our class that are going to go do this, you and Harmon, have that. You've had it this whole time. You've had it inherent within you. And there was no other way. There was no other thing for you to go do than this. So I'm super excited for you. Thank you. I'm I am too. Excited. I can't top that, yeah. but Thanks, Mitch. I'm happy for you. I'm excited for you. It was so well said. Thank you. It's the perfect spot for yeah. you. 
Thanks, guys. And that's it, Josh. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I've really, really had a good time. Uh, doing this was an amazing experience. I've never done it before, but I'm glad I did. Is it fun? Yeah, it's, it's very not fun. as bad as you think, right? No, I didn't think it was gonna be bad. Yeah, you <laughs> never know, know, right? Expect, I just right? didn't know. What to, I liked it. It was a little good. Would time. you suggest your classmates come on? Yeah, why not? Yeah, okay. We're really trying to hit the the main represented specialties because you know there may be only be a few applicants for anesthesiology, but I think stuff like this is invaluable. And we're winding down. You know, this four years went by quick and. If not, if, if nobody listens to this, you might in 20 years. Because what we had over these four years is super special. We started a med school together. There's so few of us. We're always going to be connected. And I think having Definitely. this on record is, is really awesome. So anybody that wants to come on, please just ask Mitch. I don't know contact how to, Mitch. I don't know how to, uh, yeah, don't contact me. Contact <laughs> Mitch. I don't know how to explain it either, but like there's something healthy about reflecting on monumental parts of your life. It's good for you. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I hope I hope that my story, my entire monologue was not very boring. No, it was beautiful. For the listeners. I was quiet this time because I was so engrossed in the way, <laughs> and I wish we had this on video, the way you speak. And I really I think this has to do with you reading blocks of text, but you are so, how do you, you're not, you don't like prepare what you're going to say. It just comes out of your mouth <laughs> and it comes out of your mouth so beautifully. I sound, you know, like a, you know, like a cretin. You, this is beautiful. Like the things <laughs> that you're saying, say it just flows. Don't say that. It's beautiful. So, I mean, geez, you're very even well in five years, well. in ten years, I can't even. I can't wait. I Thank can't you. wait to Thank see you. So you when he embodies the forty-two-year-old dad. That yeah, when he's actually the forty-two-year-old dad with the wisdom of the seventy-five-year-old man. <laughs> I am so excited for you. Thank you, guys, and thank you, Samantha. I really appreciate it. Thank you and for coming on. This is where on. we end. It's been a pleasure. Play out music. It's our podcast. Are you going to sink? No, you're going to swim like Josh. He's swimming. He's swimming. He's swimming. Yeah.